been recording. Have you we know? really? I, oh, I just no. knew there's some juicy bits. Oh my goodness. You're setting me up here. Blackmail material. I don't know I if people hear can hear. Yeah, I don't know if people can hear the bloop, 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 bloop. It's a little water machine. I just. Well, now they can hear Eugene imitating it. Yeah. It's kind of annoying. Anyways, uh, Sharice, extra hop in your step today. Yeah, she's got a big smile on her face. Care to share with the audience? I am happy to update everyone because I do remember there was one episode that started with me being really despondent because I'd failed my second, good word. second driver's test. And this morning, I passed. I'm really happy to celebrate. All right, I'm going to make sure Elphick throws in some round of applause in the sound oh, effects. Oh, yeah. Man, that would have been the best time. He's going to be... Um, disappointed we didn't we didn't use his soundboard. Oh, oh yeah. So let me just clap in the mic for myself. Yeah, if you, <laughs> we had this this failed attempt at using this this shitty soundboard that I got for my for my iPad, and it was just a nightmare to use. There were like way too many choices, and I don't know, it didn't sound that good. So we ended up not using it. So you are getting over a cold. Yes, maybe I am. people can hear that. Everyone's sick. I think this past weekend, everyone went too hard at Clock and Flap, which is this. I Wait, guess but you did not go. Yeah, but I was I was mixing it up in the festivities, you know? Going to late night parties. That's true. You were. Uh, made a very rare appearance at our friend Arthur's, like, random party in Wan Chai. So, he showed hold up. Hold on. Before you go, let's just explain what Clock and Flap is. It's arguably, right. it, it is Hong Kong's biggest music festival. Yeah. It's his only... This year was the 10th year, and headliners included Stormzy, Massive Attack. Who else was big? Prodigy. Yeah. Anyway, Eugene didn't go, but he did still get the flu. And then came to work and gave it to everyone else. Yeah, that was kind of a dick move on my part. I apologize for that. I do think that you should stay at home if you're sick. I get no work done at home. The point is not... It's for you guys. I know I'm selfish. Okay. the point is to protect... I get it. I get it. So some housekeeping this week, right, Cherise? Yes, we have a very special announcement. We are moving Making It Up to its own podcast. So the experience that you have right now is the Making It Up episodes come in between stories. Between yeah, audio stories. Audio stories that we also put out. We're going to start moving everything over to its own podcast and eventually phase out Making It Up from the Making Stories podcast. Yeah, so hopefully it'll be, so hopefully it'll be a little bit more organized. Yes, and you can just revert back. And if people come to making it up for the first time, they'll kind of have a better understanding rather than needing to sort of sift through all the other stuff. Should make it easier for you to explore archives, see the things that we reference, see our beautiful artwork. Let's get back to the driver's test and let me know why this one was different than the previous two. This is so Hong Kong specific, but maybe other people abroad can tell me if this is true. So they give you a random time and date for your test. And I got lucky in the sense that I got a morning slot this time, meaning that there were way, it was 920. So everyone's like already in school, already at work. There are really few cars on the street. And that really contributed to it being easy. But not because like, to be clear, like not because I'm a bad driver and I can't handle other cars on the street. The testing results would prove otherwise, Cherise. Well, third time is not so bad in Hong Kong. Yeah, what do you think the average is? 
And if you've never been to Hong Kong, it is ridiculously crazy. I do. It's not as bad as China or India, but it's like, it's still a very aggressive place to drive. I would say the average is probably around 2.5. Really? Yeah. Like test times. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's expensive. Because I asked, I would, I chat with my instructor, like the guy who, who's been teaching me this year. And he tells me, yeah, almost none of his students pass the first time. How much does it cost to take the test again? It's not cheap. It's like 2000 bucks Hong Kong, right? No, it's like 200 US, I think. Yeah, like 1600 See, That's this expensive. actually goes right into your, um, your topic for the day because there is a conspiracy theory that they make the first time passing really difficult so that they can get your money for the second test. And, and they meaning the government. Yeah. Because you pay the government to take the test. Anyways. And I don't know. I don't know. That's a really hard one to debunk you, because it, they should make it hard, right? Because you want to have good drivers on the road. Anyways, let's get right into it. Do you want to do yours then? Sure. To think critically, you have to be both analytical and motivated. So in a recent article on Ars Technica, there's a paper by Thomas Stahl from the University of Illinois and Jan Willem. Man, I forgot to Google Translate this name. Wait, wait, wait. Google Translate can tell you? At least it can kind of uh, pronounce the last name. Anyways. Okay, it's a Dutch name. Jan Willem van Pruhen. If you're, if you can speak Dutch, if Bora can can jump in and, and maybe give me some insight, we apologize. Or Luke, my friend Luke Smiths. Anyways, help me out, bro. Anyways, these two researchers examine the role of critical thinking in protecting people from bizarre or potentially false beliefs. So I think that's sort of the extremity of it. You know, fake news, all that stuff. I actually gravitated towards this because, regardless of it, whether it's fake news or just in general, I think having a sense of critical thinking. And analysis is obviously really important for us as a society and a culture to move forward. Yep. So the study itself focused on a mix of specific conspiracy theories, such as the moon landing being a hoax and 9-11 being an inside job, as well as more general theories, such as the existence of Illuminati-like organizations. So in the first survey, more than 300 people took a test to see if they approached problems critically in what was termed as a analytical cognitive style. They're also evaluated based on Stahl's earlier work, which focused on determining if they valued critical thinking or sought as a moral requirement for everyone. The authors also conceded that their test only tells if a person thinks analytically, not necessarily how good they are at it. So they set up a similar experiment focused on actual analytical ability that tested numerical and verbal ability. So what were the results? Overall, if people tend to think analytically, they were consistently protected from conspiracy thinking, and other irrational beliefs, but only if they were accompanied by the belief in the value of critical thinking. So, so you funny to think of, but that suggests that there are people who think critically yet don't value it. Yeah, I think maybe they just maybe they just embody it and they don't think that it's important because it's just so natural. Does or they don't. Sense? Well, something else in this study suggests that there's a difference between doing it yourself and valuing it highly enough that you think other people should be doing it as well. Correct. So whether you think everyone should be approaching things critically didn't seem to have an influence on holding irrational ideas. 
Um, and then the authors concluded that their studies provided support for the notion that skepticism towards paranormal and conspiracy beliefs requires significant analytical skills, as well as motivation to form beliefs based on logic and evidence. So what does this mean for the next generation? Which is my personal interest, and mm -hmm. hopefully the interest of people listening is, today, most measures of cognitive ability have increased over time, but oddly enough, conspiracy theories are still alive and well, this suggests that critical thinking and greater education needs to be both taught and valued, especially in an age where rationality can be and has been successfully overruled. In short, people need to be good at critical thinking, but if making it feels like some sort of moral imperative, it's too much of a stretch. So people need to at least see it as important or fun for it to gain traction, which is the part that worries me the most. It's like when you start to have to devalue something, to find another way to make it interesting rather than the importance of it as a whole. I think that's sort of the part that I'm always struggling with, right? Do you mean like getting people to value critical thinking for reasons other than its inherent importance? Yeah, I, I believe that there's a part of us as a culture and society that doesn't entirely value critical thinking as a whole. And if we do try to integrate it, we have to find a way to make it fun or casual rather than in understanding it for the root of the idea or the, or the notion. Right. Valuing critical thinking for itself, well, exactly. for the stake of itself. Versus needing to find a way. I feel like everything these days needs to be dumbed down before you can get to the real point. And I, I don't know if that is just indicative of times or we just need to concede the fact that if it's really complex, don't expect people to care about it. Or it's really difficult or additionally, it seems that media makes ideas interesting only in connection to someone or something like, I don't know. I would say a we're- critical thinking plug based off of Beyonce yeah. or a celebrity. But I would say we're also somewhat guilty of that with Megan. Like, I mean, you're trying to find a way for people to kind of gravitate towards- ideas and movements that hopefully introduce something deeper. Like you're kind of bringing them on a journey. And maybe that is a better way of looking at it. Like everyone has to start somewhere. So instead of throwing them to the deep end, maybe the better sort of comparison is like start at the shallow end and and, and kind of like work your way down. So first off, what yeah. is critical thinking to you? That's probably, I mean, I mean, I'm sure there's a probably a very scientific sort of like definition, but that's not the that's not the purpose of this exercise. I just want to know what you think it means. Visibly, visibly shaken right now. The, you just threw me because I was about to say something and then you threw me a question. I think it means when you approach an idea, you don't go off your gut or a feeling, or just immediately be persuaded by a persuasive person, but you need to think about it logically. Like you need to approach it objectively. From, yeah. Objectively yeah. or looking at multiple sources or like do these things corroborate? So what I'm saying about climate change, that's the inverse of critical thinking, like that feeling about climate change. Before yeah. you asked me yeah. that question, I was going to say, I, this is my own bias. I feel like critical thinking is a term with a positive slant and people would, obviously say, oh, I do want to have critical thinking as a trait, like kindness or compassion. Like people would not openly say, 
no, I don't think there's any use for critical thinking in my life. Yeah, I think people would be quick to say, yeah, there's a need for it, but whether they engage in it is another thing. Well, I think part of the problem, and I, I mean, this is not the point of the study, but the, the study does suggest, you know, people need to actively practice it to beef up this skill, but it doesn't suggest how you go about doing that. No, it's, yeah, it's not. Because what, I mean, just to kind of piggyback off my question to you, why do I think critical thinking is important? I think it's accountability, right? It's accountability for people putting ideas out in the world to know that whatever someone's communicating, you're you're holding them to make sure it's not bullshit, right? Straight up, that's what it is. And it's also critical thinking allows the introduction of new ideas. To think critically makes you ensure that anything you're going to say has some sort of backing behind it, not just like from, from the gut or like I feel this way emotionally, I'm going to say this and this is, you know, oh, it's my opinion, but it's an unvalidated opinion. And I think you see that a lot these days. Can I tell you about this flat earther? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so this is new news. This guy, his name is Mike Hughes. He lives in Southern California and he has built himself a rocket using scrap metal. His plan, he's 61, his plan is to shoot himself in the rocket, sorry, I I have really difficult, I have difficulty like even reading this without like both eyebrows raised. What's the source? Making sure it's not the end. Uh, Washington Post okay, and okay. NPR. Okay. This has been widely circulated, but it's like really hard because I feel like all of these media outlets are trying to like not laugh at this guy. I'm not actually entirely sure why they're even covering this, but here we go. So Mike, I haven't even gotten to it. So Mike Hughes, he's going to launch himself 1800 feet high in two days, okay, so his plan is November 25th. And he thinks that by doing so, he's going to prove that the earth is flat. Yeah, and what? This is what he's saying. Okay. Like, he says, I quote, it'll shut the door on this ball What, earth. by virtue of him shooting himself in, like, is, you is know, a trajectory? it really does not say that. He doesn't say how that would what? prove it. He really doesn't. I've, I have, anyway, this is just like... I feel like there's more than now. Now I'm going to spend the whole afternoon researching this, Sharice. I don't think he really knows how it's going to prove I'll, I'll flat be, Earth. I'll be really mad if this is just some marketing gimmick for some gambling site. It's not. <laughs> how would it even be for a gambling site? They always site? do these weird, stupid stunts, and then all of a sudden, hey, you this know This isn't his first... Okay, I feel like we're spending too much time on this guy now. But I was thinking about this in light of your critical thinking piece. If you had to try to persuade this guy yeah. that he is wrong, that the earth is not flat, how would you go about doing it? That's a good question. The study also suggests that critical thinking, it has to be somewhat innate too. Like you have to believe in it. So if you don't believe in, I mean, I guess he does have a sense of critical thinking that, hey, this is why my evidence You suggests- know what's weird is that he converted to flat eartherism like a year ago or a year and a half ago. So he actually convinced himself the other way. Yeah. He spent his whole life, he's 60, right? Like he spent his whole life believing that the earth is round. The truth. (laughs) Sorry, just had to like throw that out there. Yeah. And then managed to critically think his way into believing the earth is flat. Yeah. But at the end of the day, I I also think the takeaway is this, is that, you know, there's... I put it. I think it just as much as this sounds absurd, I also think it's important for it to exist, like the ideas to exist, because then it also provides you 
an opportunity to engage in critical thinking. It's like, why, why is this guy right or why is he wrong? It you is know? interesting to think about it. I also am curious. Like, I haven't looked that much into it because maybe I've been too quick to just believe that the earth is round. Mm-hmm. I'm not in any position to think that it's not, right? So, like, that that to me is making me wonder, like, I'm curious why people that, you know, <laughs> Kyrie Irving, although I think he kind of said that, they, I don't know, whatever. <laughs> Anyways, he is, he is a big, pretty big proponent of that. But I'm curious to know why people that come out and, you know, put their name behind the idea that the earth is flat, like, what is what are the reasons behind it? So regardless of, like, I, I agree, it's not about getting into it, but I also think that you need sort of the spectrum to be able to, to engage, right? And that's the thing, is critical thinking is not about me just, like, throwing out an idea and be like, hey, I'm right, don't challenge me. It's actually about engaging in that discourse. Yeah, actually, it's, it's interesting because I think when we approach, as in you or me, when the two of us approach some kind of new idea to talk through it, you can feel the critical thinking happening, right? Like you're trying to connect the dots, you're comparing one or two things, but it's interesting when you need to break down why you believe something you assume to be true. Yeah. And that's when you really do, I feel like that's an even harder muscle to work. Yeah. To rationally explain, okay, I this thing that I have always assumed to be true is true because X, Y, Z. Yeah, and it's, the way I look at it is like, you're you're simultaneously going deeper and more profound to like validate and create foundation for your argument, but you're also looking at it holistically, right? That's the thing that also comes into play with critical thinking is like, you, you can't just look at it from one perspective. You're starting to understand, you know, even from a, from a soft skills perspective of being empathetic, like, you know, how I approach the situation is based on what I believe to be true. But then you start understanding, well, now I can, if I if I can be really good at it, I'm starting to understand, hey, the reason why someone else would see this differently or approach, you know, the problem differently is because of various things. You know, cultural framework, what what how they were raised, all these things come into play. And it's like, I think that's sort of why I find critical thinking so fascinating is that they're, there really isn't any sort of answer. It's like the very act of doing it, the process is the most important thing versus arriving at any sort of end point. I do have an example of this in my own life. There's been a recent spate of mass shootings in the States, right? Over the past couple months. I, I don't mean anything new like this week, but just these past few months. And so I have, I'm all, I've always been an advocate of gun, gun control, right? But it appears that a lot of people in the States don't believe, yeah. Yeah, they don't believe it or they don't, they have different views on that from me. So I read this book called Glock, The Rise of America's Gun by Paul M. Barrett. And it's not a, the book's intention is not to be persuasive in one way. It's not trying to like persuade you that America needs better gun control or that it doesn't, but it's just sort of a history of how guns like handguns became so popular yeah. in the states and it does well it does two things for me one it helps me like you're saying have more empathy for another side of the argument yeah. and then i also just feel like i have more backup for my own beliefs yeah yeah yeah, yeah it's good so what i'm interested like the the book itself is more of 
uh, historical narrative. Yeah, it's a it's a nonfiction book. It talks about Glock specifically as yeah. a company and how they became successful. But I think in the in choosing to cover Glock as a company, it also describes how handguns became widespread in the country and how legislation didn't keep up with it. Got it. Yeah. 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 I mean, at the end of the day, like, I think that, I guess, I guess to kind of sort of put a close to this topic, I'm curious, how do you introduce, from your perspective, greater critical thinking into where we are right now? Assuming that you and I have a strong belief that it needs to exist and it needs to grow. I think the biggest barrier is that you have to encourage people to not be lazy. I would push back and say, I think you need to sell people on the value of it. Versus I don't like, think so. that. Well, that's what I was saying earlier yeah. about critical thinking being an inherently positive thing that I think people, if you ask them like, oh, you think critical thinking is an important part of a personality? They'd be like, yeah. So I, I have the opinion that it is already valued. I think the reason why even people who we know and who say they value it, they don't do it because yeah. it takes a lot of work. Yeah. You have to read and you have to do inform your yourself. own research yeah. and you have to be willing to change your mind. It's true. These are all so things that I, I, think. I personally have interest in. Yeah. I think if I was really trying to encourage someone to think more critically, I would say it doesn't mean you have to apply it across the board to everything in your life. Yeah. It doesn't like what restaurant you pick or whatever. Just things that are really important to you or matter a lot for whatever reason in your life, I would say, okay, pick that one thing. Do you think it's a matter of self-respect on the basis that you should be informed so that you're not someone that is just sort of a tool or like a means to an end? You know what I mean? Like I think that's, a, that's in, in this particular context, it, it talks about fake news and propaganda and all that stuff. And to respect yourself means to enter a space where, hey, you know what? I'm going to not let someone control me in that capacity through knowledge and through information. I think one thing that you and I can do specifically is in conversation with other people, ask harder questions. I think in casual conversations, we often just let things slide by. Like, let's say, I don't know, like a third person in this conversation you don't makes know. a claim. Yeah. And because you're being polite and you don't want to be confrontational, you're just like, oh, oh, yeah, that's interesting. Instead of being like, oh, what source do you know that from? Like, do you know what I mean? Yeah, I know. Or I know. probably not so aggressive, but just. Don't worry, I'll do it. I'll let, do it. We let people just. Too many past cards. things yeah. or, you know, adopt the thoughts of other people yeah. without questioning them. Yeah, yeah, totally. And I, it's funny I bring up Kyrie Irving again because I think he's on the top of my mind. There was a recent article that's been circulating and it talks about uh, Kyrie Irving's current dominance based on his vegan diet. Yeah. Which, you know, I, at the end of the day, like the numbers don't lie. He's playing amazing. I don't follow the NBA, but I've through, you know, just hearing, you know, he's he's been playing well, right? I mean, he must be really amazing for even you to have heard about it. Well, I mean, yeah. I, I think it was at dinner and some, I mean, what Boston's been on like, 15, 16 game winning streak. Look at you, Eugene talking about a sport that's not football. Anyways, regardless. But the things that I find interesting is that there's a there's a big article in The Ringer that talked about, you know, these vegan diets taking over. But I, I think there's a little bit of further digging that needs to go into it because 
at the very end of the day, I have nothing against like dietary choices, right? But I also don't think that veganism as as we know it is actually all that it's cracked up to be. Because, but I also think that it's there's a, there's a lot of factors, right? In terms of where we've come in in human evolution, it wasn't on the back of a plant based diet. You know, like if you look at evolution and how much energy you need to 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 fuel the brain, like that that couldn't come through plant matter. But I think that it's at a point now where people are like, oh yeah, vegan diets are amazing, they're amazing. But I think it's it's really because it's a better choice than what's currently out there, right? Because I think factory food is definitely not good. This is don't get me wrong. This is weirdly reminding me of a conversation I just had last night about another NBA star, Chris Paul. Mm-hmm. who got LASIK last year. Mm-hmm. And then apparently this contributed to an improvement yeah. in his stats. Yeah. Which I, because of this entire topic about critical thinking, I now feel like hesitant in attributing yeah. those two things. Like, yes, the LASIK resulted well, in better no, play. I, I actually think the vegan diet has helped us play. Right, but like, I do you think know. that these are both examples of things that it'd be easy to say really offhandedly. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which they could be true, like the but correlation they also causation element, yeah. could not yep. be. Like yeah. there's a possibility there. Yeah, yeah. So for me, I think that being lighter, being lighter on your feet, no doubt, because it's a different game. It's about being faster these days. Regardless, I think every sport is about speed these days more than it's ever been. This is a strange fork that this yeah, conversation has gone regardless, down anyways I, I don't want to talk too much about it but i think that what you need to be careful about is you know it the fact he lost weight is and he's lighter is critical but how he lost that weight i don't think you need, necessarily need should tie it back to an element of this diet that diet some things will really catch popular imagination at different points in time and then just spread really quickly just yeah. like what you're well, talking about. Well, I mean, it's right who's now. the mouthpiece for it, right? I think you've always had a very, very passionate group of vegan loyalists or plant based loyalists. I mean, it's not even that he's on a vegan diet so much as more plant based. You know what I mean? Although, some, how do I put this? I think it, what it really comes down to is understanding the whole picture versus, you know, what's happening in 2018, 2017 with diets, period. And look at what were the last millions of years of of human evolution. Which goes back to asking people to do more work. Yeah, you're right. Well, I guess that's a conclusion. Anyways, <laughs> I'm, I, I think it's really fascinating where we've come as humans, and I think a lot of it comes down to also the introduction of fire and being able to harness it. So anyways, on that topic, let's uh, shut things down for this one, and let's move to uh, the next one. Put I'll put it in the show notes. Oh my God, Eugene's hot take on human evolution. Fire was really important, guys. Well, yeah, it was. topic this week is why do museum visitors love 
touching the things on display, whether it's art or history objects or whatever it is in the exhibits. And this comes from an Atlas Obscura article covering this professor of museology at Birkbeck College in London named Fiona Candlin. She's been exploring this for the past 20 years, this idea of museum exhibits and touch. And she published a study called Rehabilitating Unauthorized Touch or Why Museum Visitors Touch the Exhibits. And that study um, was published in 2014. And she suggests that when a museum emphasizes visitors can only view things or explore things from their perspective, it makes it authoritative. Like you can only do, you can only understand this through the museum approved lens, right? But when visitors secretly touch the art or somehow explore an exhibit that's not the right way, then it allows visitors to learn on their own, like what's what comes naturally to them. So that's her premise. Um, and actually, it's really interesting because the initial reason she started doing this study was exploring how you can make museums accessible to people who are visually impaired. Mm-hmm. So maybe not, so yes, the blind, but also if you're colorblind or yeah. whatever it is, yeah. how can you appreciate artwork and objects yeah. if, if you can't see it that well? Does it distinguish between the type of art no, it doesn't say, it doesn't have to be like fine art. She does talk about paintings, but basically anything that's in a museum like the Louvre or the Met Museum, which is not just um, 2D art, yeah. but it's also objects like sarcophaguses yeah. and what what I find interesting and things like that. Can, can I, can I yeah, yeah, go for it. what I find interesting about that is museums are, are a historical take on something and it's almost like you're touching a piece of the past. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. Whether yeah. it's a painting or not, um, I don't know, but I, I think there's something to just be said about that connection to the past. Like, not, yes. you know, that's what I find the most interesting. So she says that too. She, I mean, she's not like, oh, museums need to just start letting people touch the objects because she understands why, right? And I think we do too because your hands are greasy. You can't have millions of visitors, you know, because it'll hands. erode, right? Yeah. You'll, you'll erode the object. But she does it'll say it, yeah. the reason people like to hold a thing is because particularly things like, let's say it's a, going back to your fire, <laughs> the um, human evolution fire um, moment from the previous subject. Let's say there was a torch yeah. from, I don't know, a Neanderthal cave, something like that. And you were able to carry that. You immediately, it's such a real link to history that you don't get from just looking, looking at, at it. Yeah. Yeah, because when you hold it, you can imagine yourself there. Yeah. And I don't, I don't, I was just thinking about this. I don't know. So one thing that is interesting to me about this topic is because I do like to go to museums a lot. And I also agree that just looking at things is not always satisfying, but I don't know what the solution is. Yeah. Oh yeah. I, I think there has to be a compromise there, but it's something that maybe had we had this conversation a few weeks ago, I probably wouldn't have really understood it. I don't know why. Like more recently, I've, I've gone to two really cool spaces, okay. like a restaurant and a retail space. And for once, I actually felt some sort of like physical connection that often I don't, I don't really have that, that type of like emotional resonance with that stuff. And it was like by virtue of like feeling textures 
um, seeing things up close and running your fingers along, you know, the trim or seeing how someone's hands, well, generally someone's hands like put this together. Yeah. That to me was really fascinating. I don't know why it, it's come upon me, but it does kind of paint a better picture of why something can be so impactful. I definitely think people learn differently. So some people might be satisfied not yeah. touching a thing, but yeah. I also think it's really natural if you bought something and you came in and you told Sharice, you told me like, oh, check out this cool thing I bought. I would immediately be like, I just raised my hand out to take it, you know, because something about. Yeah. You, you know what it was? I used to think that I didn't need to touch it. Why? <laughs> I don't know. I just didn't feel like it was necessary because I think I could just look at it with my eyes, right? But then I think it was more that you could, you could understand, let's, let's just pull a random number. 85% of the thing, whatever it may be, just by looking at it, but you're kind of closing the loop if you can yeah. really connect with it physically. I think that's the most interesting thing. It is really interesting. Yeah. Just like heft or a texture or the smoothness yeah. or not of a thing. And I'm interested in what museums can do better because I think that museums are, which I love, I love art and getting to explore that. But I think the institutions of museums is often outdated. It, it hasn't really changed in a lot of time. And they're a little bit pretentious. They yeah. want people to do things a certain way. I don't, they, I know that there are museums who do things like digital installations or videos, but somehow that is even less satisfying. Yeah. Yeah. You know, looking back on, on going to museums as a kid, the ones that I loved the most were the ones that were the most interactive. Yes. Yeah. So now we can go back to the question yeah. of mu your museum experiences. Do you remember a museum that you had fun in? Yeah, a lot of science museums were really fun. I think those are the ones that people appreciate the most because you see it and you, you can interact with it. Yeah. Whereas I, I recall, you know, there's a museum back home, um, it's kind of the provincial museum, and they have these really cool, like, scenes where... It's dark and it's it's um, let's say it's a it's a bear or something and it's a taxidermied bear. Those things are really cool, yeah. Honest, but and so you can't touch it, right? Yeah. Even though it's all built out and like made to look like you're out in the wild. Yeah. Um, I know what you mean. It's those dioramas. That's what it's called, yeah, right? Yeah, I think so. Called, I don't know. I thought dioramas the ones that are in the shoebox, and it's like, anyways, regardless. Anyway, I know scenes, what you mean. And you would you wish you were actually in it. Yeah. No, but I don't I don't yeah. know if they can make that real. But I know Maybe the that's the same thing of as you. Even as an adult, the museums you enjoy are like the science and math ones because they're set up so that you can explore how it works. Yeah. It's not as precious. Yeah. And I wish somehow art and history museums could also be less precious in a way where artifacts wouldn't be ruined by humans. Maybe that's the future of virtual reality meets some sort of like physical manifestation oh yeah so like if you could you know plant me into i don't know 15th century england and then all of a sudden i can wear things that would replicate and it's like a replica right it's not the actual chain mail from back in the day but it has the weight i look down on my hands i have the gloves on i have a sword that i'm holding etc cetera, etc cetera. i really like that idea 
Yeah. Because you could easily make objects that are the right weight, even though it's not the real actual object. You're basically tricking your mind because your eyes see this. And it would work so well. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm also just interested in, because the study talks about museums as an authority figure prescribing how you see a thing. And I think learning works best when you allow people to just go towards what's natural to them. So I don't know. Have you ever done an audio guide? No, but I... I'm familiar with what they are. Okay, so usually when, it's like a like, let's say, tour. usually I will do it if it's some kind of special exhibit. Yeah. Like for one artist or something. And then I'll get the audio guide and they don't tell you about every piece and they kind of want you to do things like in a certain procedure. And I feel like it's just not satisfying. So in closing, AR museums can't happen fast enough to bring that in. I think just... That I want them to innovate quicker. <laughs> I want them to come up with more creative things. Yeah. I think it's probably within the next five years. It won't be next year or the year after, but let's say five years. I'm excited. And then I also wonder for like non-precious art, why don't we just let people touch it? I don't know if someone's going to come back at me and be like, well, that's why this can't happen. You already have people knocking stuff over, taking selfies. That's true. Good place to end things for the day. If you are interested in hearing more about Megan and our membership opportunities, which include exclusive content and access to a members-only Slack, you can head over to... Also, just thrown in the Macon Briefing newsletter. Oh, which yes. Which is kind of the whole catalyst behind making it up. Right, which we have stopped explaining. But these news items, what we talk about, we pick from our two weekly briefings. And... That's another good reason to become a member. Exactly. And you can find out all about it at Megan.com and also read and listen to our stories focused on the sights and sounds of creative culture. So as mentioned at the beginning of the show, we're going to start migrating this to its own show feed. So what you'll have to do is, unfortunately, you'll have to sign up again. You'll have to subscribe Ooh, again. I don't want to position it as unfortunately. Fortunately, oh, you You're get okay. to now have two favorite podcasts, Making and Making It Up as a yeah. standalone product. Alongside a bunch really of upcoming shows. really don't know how to put shows. the spin on things. Dude, you're right. I'm a terrible marketer. Ugh. Eugene, Anyways, all like, I'm sorry, guys. Yeah, I apologize. But look out for that. I, what we'll do is we will continue to double post on both the Making Story feed as well as the Making It Up feed but we'll slowly move away from the making story feed. Probably, you know, two or three episodes from now. Yep. Cool. But as always, you can still do us a huge favor by reviewing this podcast on iTunes and sharing it with a friend. I'm Eugene. I'm Sharice. And this is Making It Up.